Hi, I'm Hayek Hams and I'm back once again like a renegade master, before damage with the ill behavior. Okay, that's quite enough of the Fatboy Slim lyrics. I'm stepping in for the second week of TC Pod while Daryl is chilling on his honeymoon. All of which is to say, thank you for tuning in to the TechCrunch podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Today we're talking to Amanda Silverling about Twitter's recent accessibility foibles, and Marianne Acevedo is here to discuss the unlikely partnership that is enabling Amazon employees to use equity to finance a home. First, let's do a quick rundown of the highlights and must-reads on the site this week. First up, Activision's Black Ops 3 has significant vulnerabilities that enables malicious hackers to take over other players' computers as long as they're in the same online match. The first-person shooter was released in 2015. Eight years later, it still attracts 5,000 players a day. Activision doesn't seem to care much about patching the vulnerabilities. Makes sense for an older game with declining interest. The community leapt to the rescue. Two gamers-turned-hackers have taken it in their own hands to patch the game's vulnerabilities to make it safe to play. One of the hackers, Maurice Hoyman, has been reverse-engineering Black Ops 3 to develop a client since 2015. He took a break after Activision sent him a season desist letter. He's back to working on the game again and found two vulnerabilities capable of remote code execution, a type of flaw that allows malicious hackers to remotely run code on a target's device, effectively taking full control of it. He says he reported them to Activision on May 14th and December 2nd last year, but so far the game company hasn't fixed them. The project is open source and he's asking people in the community to support it. Hoyman said that the only things that are not open source are the patches for the vulnerabilities, because those would help malicious hackers find and exploit them with the people who are using the vulnerable version of the game. The idea is that his client will essentially replace the game's official launcher. The downside of this approach is that the players using his version of the game cannot interact with other players using the official game. Lorenzo wrote the full story, come read it on TC. Also this week, Snapchat launched MyAI, a new chatbot running the latest version of OpenAI's ChatGPT, available for those willing to pay $3.99 a month for Snapchat+. Plus. MyAI can do things like help answer a trivia question or write a haiku. The bot was trained to have a unique voice and personality that plays into Snap's values about friendship, learning, and fun. Users can customize MyAI by giving it a name and customizing its wallpaper. The bot has been trained to adhere to the app's trust and safety guidelines, but the company, it appears, has limited faith in its own bot's adherence to the rules. In a statement that is seemingly designed to get ahead of any unnerving responses, Snap noted that MyAI has many deficiencies. It even went so far as to say sorry in advance to users of the new chatbot. It's worth noting that unlike Microsoft's version with Bing, Snapchat's MyAI isn't meant to act as a search engine. It is instead seen as a persona within Snapchat that you can chat with like you would with any of your friends, or at least a friend that you can't share secrets with. The company warns that conversations will be reviewed by its product team. You can read the full story from Aisha over on the site. Last up, US satellite television provider Dish experienced a multi-day outage after a reported cyber attack, with customers unable to access streams, services, or their accounts. The outage appears to affect Dish's main websites, app, and customer support system, as well as Boost Mobile, a prepaid wireless carrier acquired by Dish in 2020. Dish has about 7.6 million television subscribers. Multiple Dish employees told the website Bleeping Computer that the organization had been hit by a cyber attack with one claiming to have received a message from their manager that explained that the ongoing incident was caused by an outside bad actor and a known threat agent, and that the company is unsure how they gained access. Another employee said that staff are seeing blank icons on their corporate machines, a typical side effect of a ransomware attack. Carly is dishing the dirt on Dish over on TechCrunch. Go read it. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk to some of my wonderful colleagues. 
First up, Amanda is here to talk about how Twitter's lack of an accessibility team is making the platform unusable for many disabled users. Amanda, thank you for joining me. Hello, Daryl. Thank you for having me. Sorry, I'm just going to pretend you're Daryl as a bit because I'm sure that's really <laughs> exciting for the listeners who are here Absolutely. to listen to my bits. <laughs> I'll do my best Canadian accent. Amanda, I'm so glad you're here. You are here to talk to me about one of your favorite things happening at Twitter and announced by one of your favorite humans. Yeah, I, um, I'm i a noted Elon Musk fan, as um, anyone who has listened to the podcast or read my writing knows. Actually, I once got a comment on a TechCrunch article that was like, it is clear the author of the article does not like Elon Musk. And I'm like... Good job, Sherlock. I mean... Well, anyway, so the news here is Senator Ed Markey, who is a Massachusetts Democrat, wrote a open letter to Elon Musk being like, hey, it's really messed up that you laid off your entire accessibility team and Twitter is like actively losing accessibility features as a result and you are making your platform less accessible to anyone who needs any sort of accommodation, and that sucks. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what the letter said, word for word. <laughs> yeah, I believe you. Is there actually, so I am very ignorant about this, and I feel like you're an expert, so I get to ask you questions. Are there digital ADA compliance things around this? Not necessarily, but there are some organizations that have regulations around just like what are the recommended specs to abide by. So stuff like contrast between text and the background of the text and things like that. So if I don't misremember, the accessibility team was created in 2020 after they rolled out video tweets without captioning, and they've just rolled that back again, haven't they? Yeah. So it was Twitter had a voice tweet feature and there wasn't any captions. And that sort of was just very symbolic of Twitter's approach to accessibility at that time. And there was some outcry from people that worked at Twitter where they were like, hey, anyone who works on accessibility here is just doing this as a volunteer in their spare time. And it's not like our paid job at Twitter to do accessibility. And from there, it just made Twitter look bad. And then Twitter was like, all right, cool. We're going to make an accessibility team. I mean... The accessibility team that came out of that wasn't perfect, as nothing is really, but they did actually make some big strides in making Twitter more accessible. And I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of disability advocates and just like disabled people generally flocked to Twitter as a place where they were able to form community and especially for disabled people who might also be immunocompromised during the pandemic, that's hugely important just for, like, talking to people and, like, basic mental health and having people to talk to online. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that this accessibility team did was, like, when Twitter Spaces rolled out, there was pretty quickly captions, which Clubhouse did not do that for way too long and there's like auto captioning on video uploads. Alt text is very easy to add on Twitter. Like, to be honest, on Instagram, I like really don't think about alt text because it's just so out of the way to put alt text in. But on Twitter, it's so easy, which for those who don't know, alt text is basically like, let's say you are a blind or low vision user and Haya posts a beautiful photo of a cactus in the snow. Then Haya can type in, cactus in the snow and then 
the person who is scrolling through knows what it is because the screen reader can say, this is a cactus in the snow. Right. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of those features have disappeared again, right? Yeah. After Elon took over. Can you give some examples of the things that have vanished? Yeah, so now there's no captioning on spaces anymore, which kind of sucks. And I think the reasoning behind something like that might be that just the tech lift of that is kind of heavy because it's live captioning in real time, like being streamed to a ton of people. And we know that Twitter is trying to cut costs wherever possible, even to the point of auctioning off giant bird statues, which is hilarious to me. But then we see that these repercussions do have consequences because now there's people that are deaf or hard of hearing and suddenly they're not going to be able to participate in these conversations because there's no captions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really interesting harbinger of what is to come potentially for Twitter, right? If, If you're focusing only on making money, it becomes very easy to not prioritize marginalized groups who have finally found a place on Twitter. Yeah, and I think in Ed Markey's letter to Elon Musk, there was a really, uh, a line that really sums it up, which is, all of these changes under your leadership signal a disregard for the needs of disabled people. Mm. And yeah, I agree with that. I mean, clearly accessibility is not a priority. There's now nobody on Twitter's accessibility team. The accessibility team at Twitter probably doesn't generate as much profit as some, like, fancy engineering team making fancy features. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have value, and these decisions are showing that Elon Musk is only thinking about the value of Twitter financially and not in terms of, like, what if we made it easier for people who are not, like, perfect vision, perfect hearing, able to use our website? Yeah. I think that is an interesting aspect of Twitter in general, right? Like, I remember when Elon first took over, that was almost a year ago, actually, because we set up a a website together that was, uh, (laughs) did Elon buy Twitter yet? Oh my God, yeah, it's been, (laughs) what a year it's been. Because I think he originally, a month from now, last year, so like 11 months ago was when he was like, hey guys, I'm buying Twitter. And we were like, oh no, (laughs) what's happening? And to be fair, I think most of us thought, okay, well, that's immediately at the end of Twitter and we're still there, right? I don't think I spent as much time there, but it seems like the platform overall has actually, you know, kind of limped along. But it's interesting how it's slicing off, lopping off some of the features that have been really important. And as we discussed this morning, a bunch of features showed up that nobody (laughs) really cares about or knows about. Yeah, like in Slack, we were talking about there's a feature where there's a little badge that shows up that says where you work. And really, the only people I've seen use it are like Andreessen Horowitz and All In, which is a podcast hosted by four VCs that are buddies with Elon Musk. And it costs a lot of money to have that. Like, I don't think TechCrunch would want to put the money into paying for all of us to have a fancy little TC badge. And I don't think we need to because, I don't know. I mean, in theory, you could tell who the real TechCrunch writers are because we're verified, but now verification doesn't mean anything. So You can tell by the level of snark, I think. If there's not enough snark, you're clearly not. (laughs) Yeah, you you can tell because I'm tweeting really clever things like um, how I was playing Spelling Bee on the New York Times this morning and they wouldn't accept the word poopy. And I personally (laughs) just think that's a travesty. Yes. On this story, though, how much impact does a letter from a senator really have? I mean, does it have teeth? 
Do they have anything to back it up with? Is this a PR stunt? Like, what do you think actually is going on here? I don't think it's a PR stunt necessarily. Like, I do think that Ed Markey has been a senator who is like on various committees that think about social media and how or if the government should regulate it. But like, I don't think Elon Musk is going to read this and be like, damn, I really got to listen to Ed Markey because... I don't know, is Elon Musk really going to listen to, like, a progressive-leaning Democratic senator who, like, co-authored the Green New Deal with his BFF AOC? Right. Which I say that because he's been very mean to AOC on the internet. Right. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I chose to write about this because I just thought it was a good entry point through a news item to be like, yeah, have we noticed that accessibility is really getting deprioritized on Twitter and that's a problem and we should be talking about it. Which, yeah, I mean, I think kind of from the news side of things, I was like, oh yeah, I've been wanting to write about accessibility on Twitter. And this letter gives me an opportunity to be like, hey, this is something that senators are thinking about. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I think in some ways it does give the issue legitimacy to be like the government is paying attention but at the same time, is he really going to listen to them? Right. Yeah. Well, he doesn't seem to care about even the SEC or some of the other people yeah. that he maybe should be listening to. So I imagine a letter from a senator, not so much. But I mean, there is something to be said for people actually reopening the conversations, right? Yeah. And I think having a town square where people can meet up and, and have good conversations is important. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, maybe doubly important for people with disabilities. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is also just another example of Elon Musk's hypocrisy to me, which is that he's all like, yeah, we need to hear from all kinds of people and like have open conversations and talk to people that are different from us. And then he's just making it really hard for people with certain disabilities to use his platform. And another mm -hmm. thing that I talked about in this article that we didn't mention yet is that with Twitter limiting access to the API, that also has implications for accessibility because there are some programs like Twitterific that help people toggle their accessibility settings. And then now, because the API access is being paywalled, a lot of these third-party tools that can help people have choice of how to experience Twitter are being shut down. And this isn't just people being like, Oh man, that cool plugin that tells me whether someone is $8 verified or actually verified is going to go away. Or like my friend who made a, a bot that just tweets things based on what they've said in the past is like, Elon Musk killed my robot son, which RIP to my friend's robot son. But when you make it so that accessibility plugins are not accessible. Right. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, and I I mean, I feel like the future of Twitter in general is still in the balance. And the giant dramatic implosion that we were expecting looks like it isn't going to happen. But this is, like, in my mind, this is death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Where yeah. little by little, the platform becomes less and less useful to the people who want to use it. And I mean, I do enjoy, like, if they cut off all the API access, that means that a lot of the bots are going to go away and I'm not going <laughs> to cry over that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I wrote a bunch of bots myself and it's a little bit sad that that is no longer, you know, well, feasible. Again, it's like my friend's robot son. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, this even just gets back to the general, like, Elon Musk's obsession with, like, ridding the bots, where mm -hmm. 
I mean, yeah, there's some spam bots, but there's also some bots that are like, I'm tweeting every line of Howl by Allen Ginsberg over and over again for a decade. Sure. That's fun. Or, you know, the earthquake bots, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. That, that show when there are earthquakes or when there's natural disasters. There's a lot of like public utility that is actually run by various bots or, or code that has real public utility. And I think some of those kinds of things, they added to the value of Twitter and losing that is going to be sad. Yeah, for sure. Amanda, an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming and I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thank you, Daryl. Sorry, I just had to, you know, do a call back <laughs> to my bit because, you know, the rules of comedy or something like that. I don't know. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Uh, tip your waiters and waitresses. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying anymore. On that note, ciao. <laughs> Next, Marianne is here to discuss how Amazon employees can use their company equity as collateral to buy a house. For this next segment, I'm joined by Marianne. Hello, Marianne. Hi. Hiya. How are you? I'm doing great. You wrote a really amazing story this week about something interesting Amazon is doing to help get their employees into houses. That seemed a little bit random. Talk me through it. Uh, yeah, random is the word. And I did co-write this with our esteemed colleague, Natasha Mascarenas, who is away at the Upfront Summit today, so she's not able to join us. But yeah, this really came as a surprise, Haya. Um you know, for those who aren't familiar, Better.com is a digital mortgage lender who was, well, which was doing very, very well a few years ago when interest rates were super low, business was booming, things obviously took a turn, and mortgage interest rates started climbing, refinances slowed down to almost nothing, and the company saw its revenue plummet. As a result, it started laying off people. And, you know, laying off people in and of itself is not something that is necessarily like a shocking thing, but it was the manner in which the CEO of this company conducted the layoffs that made headlines and not in a good way. So long story short, Better.com has laid off, I think, four, laid off four times in like a nine-month period. Some believe in a very callous manner. Executives left the company in droves, and there's been a lot of doubt around the sustainability of the company and, and just its future in general. It was supposed to go public via SPAC, that hasn't happened. So when we heard that Amazon, one of the biggest, you know, companies in the whole world, had partnered with Better.com to offer up a new benefit to their employees, I was kind of shocked. Yeah. And so what is that benefit? The benefit is this new program. It's called Equity Unlocker. Basically lets employees use their vested equity as collateral for a down payment if they want to buy a home. So they don't have to cash it in. They don't have to sell. It's just the vested equity to use as collateral. And Amazon employees in so far right now, it's Florida, New York, and Washington State are the first that are going to be able to try it. Eventually, they're planning to spread that to other states. And when you say equity, you mean the bonuses they get for or the, the, the slice of Amazon they get for working for Amazon? Right, right. They're vested equity. So they don't have to actually, they don't have to sell their shares. And now this is a benefit not only for current Amazon employees, but for former Amazon employees that have vested equity, they're also able to take advantage of it. Well, take advantage of it is, you know, <laughs> an objective, subjective term. Sorry. Yeah. 
And so you don't have to sell it, you don't have to do anything, but the idea is that you essentially put it up as collateral. So if you can't pay your mortgage, the mortgage company can take some of your Amazon equity. You know, I hesitate to get into the intricacies of that, like what would happen if you don't pay your mortgage, because I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. I can say, though, that one caveat here is that Better.com is going to charge between 0.25 and 2.5 percentage points above the market rate for doing these loans. So if you are, if you do decide to do this, because mortgage mm -hmm. interest rates right now are already pretty high, I think about 6%. So if you tack on another two and a half percent, we're talking potentially over 8% interest rate. So there is kind of a price to be paid here right. if you decide to do this or go this route. Yeah, totally. The other thing I'm curious about is like when I think Amazon employee, I think people are relatively well paid anyway. And I wonder you know, how many people need this? Or is this some sort of a marketing uh, thing from like, I'm really mm -hmm. curious how this came to be. Yeah, I mean, we all were. <laughs> we all were. And I asked Amazon point blank, like, how did this come about? And they didn't really answer directly, but better.com in a statement said that it's been a customer, an AWS customer since I think 2015. So there was already this kind of relationship there. But Becca on our staff did a very quick search to find that it's not the only mortgage lender that that uses AWS. So we're still not really entirely sure why Amazon chose to partner with Better.com. It just, it felt like a really odd pairing. Better.com does not have the best reputation out there. That's not to say that its technology isn't good. It is actually pretty good from what I understand from people who worked at the company. It's probably one of the best things about it is the actual technology was good. It's just the way the business was run was not necessarily considered the greatest, but still, you know, the fact that Amazon with its reputation would want to pair itself with a company that has been, and you know, made such negative headlines over the past year just really had us shaking our heads. Yeah. Well, and I've got to say, being an AWS customer is the most tenuous link. I think we'd struggle really hard to find any startup that doesn't use AWS for something, right? Right. So, it, yeah, that was that was curious. It was curious, and I also have to, I also, in, I guess, other than Amazon's defense, we live and breathe the startup world. I've covered Better.com 50 million times, but the average consumer may have no clue, right? They may have never heard of Better.com. They may have no idea of what kind of CEO it has, and they may have, you know, no inkling of, of the fact that it's not doing well financially. So, you know, I have to keep that in mind that we live in this insulated world of covering startups and just because we know all these gory details, many people probably don't, and perhaps they're banking on that. Alex Wilhelm had a theory that maybe Amazon, maybe it has like an ulterior motive related to the real estate market, particularly like in Washington State, of wanting to maybe boost it there, you know, because it does have real estate holdings. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting theory. Well, Amazon also recently bought one medical and have kind of gone like, we're going to be your medical provider and that's the thing you can now start looking into, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is this the first step towards them actually doing the same for mortgages? Like, is Amazon going to do absolutely everything at some point? Oh my God. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like, my brain doesn't, doesn't go there. I don't know. When I did reach out to Amazon, the spokesperson that got back to me did emphasize that they're trying to provide support for the whole employee mm -hmm. and then cited financial wellness, mental wellness, and physical wellness as all these essential facets of employee health. So they're trying to address that by providing benefits, you know, that kind of touch on all those things. That's basically what he said. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I guess on the one extreme, this is two very large companies with varying degrees of reputability that are basically setting up an employee plan and, you know, what business is that of ours? On the other hand, there is a really interesting movement towards like you have to give your employees interesting incentives to stay around, right? Even though there's been a lot of layoffs, it's still like the best engineers and the best employees are still constantly getting poached. I mean, yeah, it's true. I am very curious. I would love to know, like in a few months' time or a year's time, how many employees actually took advantage of this program, how many decided to use their vested equity. I I don't know if I would personally do such a thing, to be honest with you. Like I I know when I was much younger, I bought my first piece of real estate. Um, in my late 20s, and I did it by cashing in my 401k, or I don't even remember, it wasn't the whole thing, but like part of it and paid a penalty to use as a down payment. At the time, I was like really young, not really thinking about retirement. I was more focused on let me have my own place that I can Mm -hmm. not have to pay rent anymore. But like that was felt okay to me at the time. And like, if I were, you know, I probably would do that again at that age. But like, if this were presented to me, I can't say it would be as appealing but that's just mm-hmm. me. Others might think, hey, wow, this is great. This is cool. You know, let me do this. And now I can finally own something or work my way towards owning something. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of a lot of paths to home ownership. And maybe this is one that will become more common now that Amazon has put it out there. And, you know, it's a short step from that to many other companies offering this as a perk. Yeah. I mean, that's Better's goal. They want to make this available nationwide for employees of public and private companies everywhere. So I think that's better's hope that other companies follow suit and perhaps this could be another way for them to earn money and dig themselves out of the hole that they seem to have gotten themselves in. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess ultimately, like if you zoom out far enough, this is yet another financial services product, you know? It's yet another way you can leverage an asset to buy a different asset. I feel like we've seen a lot of that from Wall Street, from various, and and in the crypto space as well, where you have different mechanisms for turning money into different kinds of money. Well, absolutely. I mean, and I think that, you know, there's still, while it's kind of like fallen out of fashion to some people or in some markets, there are still so many that feel like owning their own home is still kind of like the American dream, right? And there's something to that. So I do think it's an unusual, it's a creative benefit, and that I applaud. Uh, how it plays out over time, I don't know, we'll see. But still, a surprising, surprising partnership, yeah. to say the least. Are you planning to keep an eye on it? Can we keep reading about this as it evolves on uh, a tech news site near you? Uh, yeah, I really would love to keep an eye on it. I'm curious, but here's the thing. Better.com doesn't like me very much anymore because I've reported on them so much. And I don't think they're going to tell me very much unless it's just super positive news and they want to broadcast it. Amazon's pretty tight-lipped about details too. So I don't know how much we're going to get out of either company. But yeah, I do think if it ends up going well, then Better might be willing to share more about it. So it doesn't hurt to follow up in a few months. Yeah, yeah. I have every faith in your sleuthing skills. <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting company to say the least. So I'll be I'll be keeping a watch. Yeah, absolutely. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your uh, wisdoms with us today. Thank you for having me. Always great chatting with you, Haya. Have a good one. You too. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. You can read all the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com. 
In a couple of months, I'm going to TechCrunch Early Stage in Boston. Join me and save yourself some money by using the code TCPOD for a 40% discount on founder and investor passes for the event on the 20th of April. As always, don't miss the other TC podcasts. We have Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. Next week, you'll be back in the capable hands of Daryl. Peace out, take your vitamins, and have a beautiful day. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.